If you have your Bible tonight, and I hope that you do, please open it to the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. And while you're finding that book in the Bible, let me ask you this question. When you think of greatness, when you hear the word greatness, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Now, certainly, here we are in church, and even if we weren't in church, we're mindful of God always, and so we would say, when I think of greatness, I think of God. God is great. We were taught to pray when we were young. God is good. And then we were taught to thank God for our food. So God is the ultimate greatness. But I'm talking tonight about human greatness. When you think about human greatness, what do you think about? Maybe you think about uh, somebody in the world of sports. For example, me. I'm a big sports fan. And when I think about greatness, I think about somebody like Michael Jordan. Uh, To me, the greatest basketball player of all time. Six-time NBA champion. Six-time championship MVP. I mean, he was great. I think about somebody like Tom Brady. Seven-time Super Bowl champion. And to watch his career those years. uh, Sports greatness. Uh, Maybe you think tonight about a coach. I just saw, I I turned the news on just before I came to church tonight. And I saw where Nick Saban, the longtime coach of the University of Alabama, has just retired from coaching. And so for those of us who are football fans... That is a huge loss to, uh, to college football. He's the, considered the greatest coach. You talk about greatness. He's won seven national championships and got this close to being in the championship game again this year. So that's sports greatness. Maybe when you think about greatness, you may be not a sports fan as much, but you think about the world of business. And at the end of my sermon last Wednesday night, I was talking about Warren Buffett, largely considered the greatest certainly one of the greatest investors and businessmen in American history. And I was sharing briefly some of the things that I have learned about him. And then I did mention about him not being a believer, being a, uh, says he's an agnostic. And it's been on my heart uh, to write him a letter and to, uh, to just share a little bit of my story with him, to thank him for what he has meant to me, what I've learned from him from a distance, uh, but also to share of my story about how Jesus changed my life. And I did that last week. And on Friday, that letter went out. And we prayed last week about that. And I wish you to continue to pray for him. But as you think about business greatness, I, can't, I don't think of many people who would be lifted up above him. Maybe when you think about greatness, you're not into sports and you're not much into uh, business. But you think about politics. And you think about political leaders, kings, or maybe even presidents in our country. And when I think about political greatness, now this is just me, Showing the era that I grew up in the 80s, I think about President Reagan. Greatness. I think about the speech he gave where he said to Mr. Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And not long after that, that wall was torn down. And when his successor, President George Bush Sr., became when he became the president, from going vice president to president, it was in his administration that the Cold War ended. And so I look at those men that had such an impression on me from a distance when I was a teenager, and I just think, there's greatness there. There there is statesmanship. There is integrity. There are gentlemen. And from a political perspective, I think, now there's, there's greatness there. Now tonight, in our study in 2 Chronicles, we're looking at a king who by anybody's standard would fall under the category of greatness. He was the the sixth king... Uh, of Israel. We start out with King Saul, the first king, 
and then King David, and then his son, King Solomon, and then his son, King Rehoboam, and then his son, uh, Abijah, and then we come to king number six, a man named Asa. And for 41 years, Asa was the king in Jerusalem, the king over Judah. Keep in mind that at this time, the nation of Israel was divided roughly in half. There was Israel, what was called Israel in the north, and Judah in the south. And so Israel had its own list of kings, and Judah had their own list of kings. Now, Judah had good kings and bad kings. Israel had all bad kings. But Israel, Judah in the south, some good, some bad, some good, some bad. But I can assure you tonight, if we were in an Old Testament seminary class, and we were studying the great kings of Judah, the great kings of Judah, at the beginning of that lecture, the professor would say to us, you need to understand that King Asa was a great king. He's not as well known as David, but he was nonetheless a great king. King Asa, his administration, his 41 years of leadership had greatness all around it. And yet tonight, we're thinking about when good kings make bad decisions. And what we're going to be thinking about tonight doesn't just apply to kings. It applies to to us, to normal people. When good people make bad decisions, when good people do bad things. You know, sometimes, it's interesting, this, this certainly could be true as we're thinking about these kings uh, in Judah and the, king up, the kings up north in Israel. Sometimes, it could be true today of, 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 any, of any political leader. Sometimes you can have a bad king who has no moral compass, no fear of God, maybe no belief in God, and yet that king could actually do something good. He could make a good decision. He could pass a good policy. So you would have, from a, the biblical way to say that would be, you have a bad king who did some good things. Conversely, you could have, and we see this tonight in King Asa, you could have a good king, a man with a good moral compass, a man with a heart for God, a man who had the fear of God in, in his heart and in his life, a good king, and yet... Even a good king on two separate occasions doing foolish things, making bad decisions, doing unwise things, and that certainly is what we're seeing in the life of King Asa. And so I want to make the point at the beginning, and I'll try to remember to say it again at the end, that just because you love God, or just because I love God, and just because we may, in our past, have done a lot of good things and made some right decisions and taken some good stands and, and done good things in the past, that is no guarantee that we will do the right thing in the future. Doing good is a daily challenge, and it is something that we have to work at each and every day. Now, in Second Chronicles, if you'll go back to chapter number 14, I want to show you the first by way of review from last Wednesday night, and then it'll all be new. But I want us to think tonight about two things that this good king did that was good, that was right. And this was really who this man was. Second Chronicles 14 in verse 2. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. So God is 
who's inspiring this book to be written, God himself is giving Asa his endorsement. For he removed the high altars of the foreign gods and the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law uh, and the commandments. He, he also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was quiet under him. And so what Asa did, he went all through the region of Judah, down in the Jerusalem area, southern, what we call today southern Israel, and all these pagan altars of worship that had been built, he said, tear them down. God, God wants to be worshiped in Jerusalem, and uh, And so you tear these pagan altars down. These altars are to gods who don't even exist. And so that's that's what he did. In fact, if you look in chapter 15, I'll show you how committed this man was to God. In chapter 15 and verse 16, we read that Asa removed Maka. Maka. Now, I'm reading in the New King James. It says the mother of Asa, literally, it was his grandmother, the grandmother of Asa the king, from being the queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah, and Asa cut down her obscene image, then crushed and burned it by the brook Kidron. And so Asa's grandmother was part of this pagan worship. And so Asa was so loyal to God that he removed his own grandmother from being the queen mother of the Jerusalem area. So his loyalty to God even superseded his loyalty to his own family. And so this is no wonder the Bible says this is a good man, and he was a good king, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Now, look with me. You're in, go back to chapter 14, and let's look in verse 8. I want to show you something else that Asa did that was right. And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah who carried shields and spears, and from Benjamin, 280,000 men who carried shields and drew bows. All these were mighty men of valor. Now, Benjamin is, of course, another one of the tribes, but this is all in southern Israel. It's in the, the Judah region. So he was the king over all of this. And so you put these two armies together, and Asa had, a, had an army of 580,000 fighting men. So he had a, he had a big army. He's, he's over all these men. But look in verse number 9. Then Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against him with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Marisha. And so now the, the king of Ethiopia is coming against Asa, And he has an army of a million men, almost twice as many as Asa had. So let's read how Asa handled this. So Asa went out against him, and they set the troops in battle array in the valley of Zephathah at at Marishah. Now watch verse 11. And Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we do go against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. And so the first thing Asa did when he saw this army of a million soldiers, he prayed, and he said, God, help us. We're outnumbered. There are more of them than us, but we're not in retreat. We're not in surrender. We're in attack mode. We're moving forward. 
But as we move forward, we fully understand that unless you fight for us, we will be defeated and we will be destroyed. Verse 12, so the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them to Gerar. So the Ethiopians were overthrown, and they could not recover. For they were broken before the Lord and his army, and they carried away very much spoil. Then they defeated all the cities around Gerar. For the fear of the Lord came upon them, and they plundered all the cities, for there was exceedingly much spoil in them." They also attacked the livestock enclosure and carried off sheep and camels in abundance and returned to Jerusalem. And so here's King Asa, completely outnumbered, overmanned. And he cried out to God and he said, God, help us. And God helped him. And God gave them the victory over that. And so this is all the reason that King Asa was a good king. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And we study this and we just say, go Asa, go. You are doing the exact right thing. But remember what I said a moment ago. Just because you're a good person who loves God, who has a strong moral compass, who has the fear of God in your heart, and just because you have done many good things in the past, that is no guarantee that you or I will do good things in the present and in the future. It is a daily thing, and we see in Asa now, beginning in chapter 16, two very costly mistakes that he made, and as we read the passage, it's surprising to us. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 1, in the 36th year of the reign of Asa, now listen to that, the 36th year, his, his reign only lasted 41 years total. So he only has, he didn't know it now, but he only has five years of life left. He is coming to the end of his reign. He has been in the reign in the, as the king on the throne for over three and a half decades. In the 36th year of this godly man's reign, Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa brought silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house and sent to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty. So now, what's happening? The Israeli king is coming down south to fight with Asa and with his army. And you would expect for Asa to say the same thing that he said when the Ethiopians were coming. Now, God, here's another army. They're coming against us. Help us, Lord. That's not what he did. He goes now to the king of Syria, and in verse 3 said, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. See, I have sent you silver and gold. Come, break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad heeded king Asa, and he sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel, they attacked, and it lists all these cities they attacked. Verse 5, now it happened when Basha heard it that he stopped building Ramah and ceased his work. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones and timber of Ramah, which Basha had used for building, and with them he built Geba and Mizpah. So what Asa does here, instead of turning to God, he turns to another king. He said, let's form an alliance. Let's you and I come together. 
Because the king of Israel can defeat us, but if we're a force, the king of Israel can't defeat both of us. He can't defeat Syria and Judah. So let's form a pact. Let's double our strength. Let's double our army. And that's exactly what he did. And as we just read here, when the king of Israel came to fight, he was defeated. And so I'm sure Asa is thinking, well, it worked pretty good. I had a good plan. But look in verse number 7. And at that time, Hanani, the seer or the prophet, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered you out of their hand. For, now, this is, this, verse 9 is one of the greatest verses in all the Old Testament. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. And so, when Asa turned to the king of Syria, instead of God, even though he had a temporary victory right there, the thing that he did greatly displeased the Lord. And so God sent his servant, his prophet, his preacher, his man, Hanani, and said, Hanani, go tell Asa that what he did was wrong. He has not relied on me, and now there's a price to be paid. Now, had you and I been Asa and made the mistake he made, and the man of God come to us and confronted us with our sin, What would we have done? Well, I don't know what we would have done, but hopefully what we would have done, we would have said, you're right, I was wrong. I confess I'm guilty. Please, God, forgive me for not turning to you and for turning to the king of Syria. But see, even though Asa had done wrong, he continues to do wrong. Look in verse 10. Then Asa was angry with the seer, angry with Hanani the prophet, and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him because of this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. So he just shot the messenger. He didn't like the message. And so he just shot the messenger. And that was a terrible, terrible mistake. He refused to repent, and he did the wrong thing. So let me say this, or ask you this question tonight. When you're living your life, and you are up against something, and you feel completely overwhelmed by it, completely Uh, overpowered by it, completely inadequate for whatever it is that you're facing. Here's the question. Who do you turn to and on whom do you rely? Do you return to God? Do you turn to God or do you turn to a friend or somebody that may have influence or somebody that may can help you? Well, we should turn to God and not be putting our faith in other people. And that was, the, that was the mistake, and really the first mistake I see that King Asa made. But beginning in verse 11, we see him make a similar mistake. We just see this pattern. It's like, it's like something happened. He turned to the king of Syria instead of to God, and instead of repenting of that and turning back to God, it just seems like he finishes his life doing the same thing again. In verse 11, note that the acts of Asa first and last, are indeed written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Now look in verse 12. In the 39th year of his reign, the 39th year, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was severe. 
Now watch this. Yet in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but only the physicians. But only the physicians. He didn't seek the Lord. So this, 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 pro, this, this thing that he did first with the king, now he's doing it with the doctors. He has a problem. Something has gone wrong in his feet. We don't know what it was. Maybe he was diabetic before diabetes was even known what it was. And he began to have a problem in his feet. Maybe he had gout. Maybe he had some infection. We don't know what his problem. But he had something had happened to his feet. And it was a serious thing. But this little phrase, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. Now, look at the next verse. So Asa rested with his fathers, and he died in the 41st year of his reign. Now, he began to have this disease in the 39th year of his reign. And he died two years later. And so he had a foot problem for two years. But during those entire two years... Instead of seeking the Lord, instead of praying, instead of asking for a healing touch from heaven, all he did was go to the doctors. Now, I'm not against going to doctors, and neither is God. Uh, I'm very much pro-doctor. Some of my best friends on the planet are doctors, and so I am thankful for doctors. But friend, I want to say to you tonight, if God forbid you should have some serious disease or ailment or cancer or heart situation, or anything that comes upon your body, I would encourage you, before you go to the doctor, go to the Lord. Let me, that would have been a good place for an amen. But uh, let me back that up, and we'll just try that again. Before you go to the, doc, go to the doctor, go to the Lord. Amen. amen. To go to the Lord, and to say, God, first of all, I'm asking you to heal me. I'm, I am praying for a healing touch from heaven. Friend, I want to remind you tonight, God is still in the business of healing. He doesn't always do that. Sometimes people get sick and they die. Sometimes people get sick and they get healed. But whether, whatever the outcome is, it doesn't change the fact that God is still a healer. He is Jehovah Rapha. And so the first thing we should do, should anything go wrong with our bodies, is we should pray and we should ask God to heal our bodies and touch our bodies. And the second thing we should do is we should ask God if the healing doesn't just take place supernaturally like that, we should ask God to lead us to the right doctor. Remember this. I hear people say, and, and, and I think there's, this can be effective if you've got the right doctor. But sometimes I'll hear a person say, well, whatever my doctor says, that's just what I do. Well, my response to that would be, you just better make sure you've got a smart doctor who never gets it wrong. Because I, I have some doctors that I put in that I have that much high esteem for that just about whatever they told me to do, I would, I would probably do it. But remember this, and, and I just feel led to say this tonight. Some, some of you may end up in a doctor's office before this week's over, and, and you're trying to figure out what to do, and your doctor is saying you need to do this. Remember this. One of the great things about being a Christian is that wherever we are, the Holy Spirit is there with us. And so in the process of trying to decide, should I do this or that? Should I have this operation or what, what should I take this treatment? What should I do? I personally would never give the doctor the final say. I would only give the Lord the final say. In other words, I would not just put my whole life into the doctor's hands and say, well, whatever the doctor says, that's what I'm going to do. After all, he's smarter than I am. 
Well, friend, listen to me. Your doctor probably is smarter than you, and he's probably smarter than me. But that doesn't mean he's smarter than some other doctor. (laughs) That doesn't mean he's the smartest doctor. And so when you're in that setting, you pray, and you just say, and you can't even have a long prayer, but just in your spirit. Here's what you're looking for in that setting. God, I'm looking for you to give me confirmation. The doctor is saying to me that I should have, this is what I should do. God, here's what I'm asking for, peace, confirmation. Is he telling me right or is he telling me wrong? And if if the doctor's telling you right, God will give you peace. The doctor's telling you wrong, you'll begin to feel nervous. You'll begin to feel a lack of peace. I've told you before, it's been a long time, and I don't talk much about this. But in 2015, when I had a malignant tumor on my left kidney, I was in a fine doctor's office one day, a fine doctor's office. I would say one of the best doctors in Houston. And he put up a CAT scan of my kidney and of the tumor on the kidney. And he said to me, you've got to get this tumor removed. Well, I knew that was true. And he said, I can get it out. He said, but when I go in to take this tumor out, there's a chance that I may cut your aorta. Well, if you have a malignancy in your body and the doctor is telling you he can get it out, your first thought is, I don't care what you have to cut, just get it out, right? You just want to be, get that out. But as I continue to think about that, I thought, all things being equal, I would rather not have my aorta cut. I've not been to medical school, but I think that's a bad thing, right, if they cut the aorta. But I thought, if he's got to cut it, he's got to cut it. And he didn't say that he would cut it. He just said he might cut it, and there was a good chance that that's what would happen. The more we talked, and he had, and this is a fine doctor, he had in his hand the, di- the CD of my CAT scan. And the more we're talking, it's just something in my mind said, go to another doctor. You've got to get this tumor cut out. It'll kill you if you don't. But this is a big deal, so don't rush into the operation. Go to another doctor and get another opinion. And so I said to this doctor, whom I respected then and I respect now, I said, you know, I don't mean to offend you because I think you're wonderful. But I'll be honest, I'll be as honest with you as I can be. I want a second opinion. I want to just talk to a second, another surgeon. But I need that disc back so I don't have to keep having CAT scans. And when I said that, I don't think he liked that because he said, now, you know, I can't get in the operating room without this disc. And I said, well, if you and I end up going to the operating room together, I'm going to give you that disc back. But I just want to talk to another doctor. There's nothing against you, but I just want to talk to another doctor. I don't know how, how else to say that. And he gave me the disc back, and I took the disc to another doctor. And the, the doctor put the disc in his computer, and he got the same image up on his screen. And he's saying, now, here's your tumor, and here's, the, here's your kidney, and here's all this. And I just said to him, very nonchalantly, I said, well, I know from visiting with another doctor that you're going to have to cut, you may have to cut my aorta. I do understand that. And he looked at me, and he looked at that disc, that computer screen, and he looked back at me and said, I don't have to cut your aorta. He said, that tumor is close to your aorta, but I can get in and out of there and not touch your aorta. And when he said that, I said, I want you to take me to the operating room. <laughs> you're promising to get the tumor out, and you're telling me you're not going to cut my aorta. And uh, he said to me then, he said, I will have to take out your adrenal gland. 
And I said, well, I don't want to take it out. I want to keep my, I like my adrenal gland. And he said, well, that's coming out. That's another story. But the point is, uh, the point is, had I gone to that first doctor, who is one of Houston's finest, and said in my spirit, whatever the doctor says, he's smarter than I am. Whatever he says, that's what I'm going to do. There's a good chance tonight that somebody else would be preaching this sermon because I would have died on the operating. They cut your aorta. That becomes what doctors call a bloody surgery. Not that they can't fix it, but it's just a little more dicey. But see, that's what my point is. That's not how I live my life. I'm not going to give anybody the last say on my life other than the Holy Spirit of God. And so in that office, when he's telling me that, but it wasn't just me and my dad was with me. It was not just the two of us. It was the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is saying to me, don't do it, John. Don't do it. You get to talk to another doctor. Don't do it. 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 And it all worked out good because God led me like that. And I'm so thankful for his healing touch on me and that the surgery went well. And, and that's, I just so could not be more thankful for that. But the point I'm making tonight is Asa didn't do that. Now, I think it's safe to say Asa was a better man than I am. Asa was a godlier man than I am. Asa was one of the godliest kings that Judah ever had. And yet, on this occasion, instead of seeking the Lord and asking for help and letting God guide him and lead him, there was none of that. He went to the doctors and he said to himself, the doctors are smarter than I am. Whatever they say, that's what I'm going to do. Well, I bet that I think there'd probably been a lot of people who have had bad outcomes in their life because they had that attitude in, in life. Don't give a doctor the last, go to the doctor. I'm for the doctors. I'm all for, in fact, I like to see multiple doctors. But uh, let God have the last say. Now, as we think about Asa, a good king, a godly man. A 41-year reign. And at the end, in fact, if you look in verse number 14, he dies in verse uh, 13, having reigned for 41 years. They buried him in his own tomb, which he had made for himself in the city of David. And they laid him in the bed, which was filled with spices and various ingredients, prepared a mixture of ointments. They made a very great burning for him. What does it mean they made a great burning for him? It means they burned up incense. It was, it, was the, it was the way back then that they would honor a great king. So even though he messed up on these two instances, he's still a great king. And he died and they honored him for who he was. But tonight, as we come to the end, I have written down four statements about doing good. Because I've, I've titled the message tonight, When a Good King makes bad decisions, and sometimes we make bad decisions. Let me make four quick statements, and then we'll wrap this up. Number one, as important as it is to do good, we're not saved by doing good. Now, I think we all know that, but just in case there's some visiting tonight, and, and I don't want to send out a bad signal, we're not saved by doing good. We're saved by receiving Jesus Christ as our, into our hearts as our Lord and Savior. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16 that says that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. You could never do enough good to wipe away all the bad 
that you and I have done. So we're not saved by doing good. Number two statement. Although we're not saved by doing good, we should do good. In our lives, we should do good. I'm reading through the book of Acts right now. And the other day I read a verse, I believe it's in Acts chapter 10. And it talks about Jesus. And it says, Jesus, now listen to this. This is how the Bible describes Jesus. Jesus went about doing good. Say, so what did Jesus do on a given day? He just went about doing good. Helping people, saving people, forgiving people, healing people, encouraging people, lifting people up. He went about doing good. And so we should do good. Let me give you two verses. First, Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Listen to these words. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so God wants us to do good. Psalm 37 in verse 3. This, this would be a tremendous life verse. I'm thinking about writing a booklet called Do You Have a Life Verse? And do a 31-day devotional with 31 different verses. And this verse most definitely should be on the list. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. So even though we're not saved by doing good, if we have been saved, we should do good. Doing good uh, is, is a very important thing. Statement number three, doing good is a daily thing. Just because you do, did good yesterday doesn't guarantee that you're going to do good today. And just because you did good today doesn't guarantee that you're going to do good tomorrow. It's a daily thing. King Asa had 36 years of doing good. And he came to the end of his life and he started doing some bad things. Some not immoral, but just unwise things. And one of the things he did cost him his life. And so doing good is a daily thing. The Christian life is a daily thing. You may this morning have had the greatest quiet time of your life. You may this morning have had, I mean, the presence of God, like the Shekinah glory of God just came down in your living room and you just felt God. And all day long you have felt the presence of God with you. And you've been walking today in unbroken fellowship with God. I would say hallelujah to that. Praise the Lord. But that's no guarantee that between right now and when you go to bed tonight that you're going to do good. Because just because you did good this morning and had a good experience, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to do good tonight. Remember this, when we're on a mountaintop, that's when the devil often comes and tries to tempt us and trip us up. That's what he did with Jesus. Jesus has been in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights on a fast. And he comes out of that fast and there come the temptations from the devil. And so, in, so doing good is a daily thing. Every moment we have, every conversation we're in. Every temptation we face, it is moment by moment, God, help me to do good. Help me to do right. And remember this, if you do good, especially when you're faced with temptation, when, when, you're, when you're faced with temptation, think this is one thing that will help us when we're facing temptation. Just think, if I resist this temptation, just think how good you're going to feel. If I give in to this temptation, just think how bad you're going to feel. Or if you're in a conversation with somebody and somebody says something rude to you. And you've been, in, you've been with God all day. But they say something rude and untrue to you. And everything in you wants to just mow them down verbally. Well, before you crank that lawnmower, just think, how are you going to feel if you tell them off? You're going to feel rotten. Then you're going to have to apologize to them tomorrow. And you're going to just feel bad. But if you're kind, you don't say anything you regret, you're going to think, Hallelujah. I passed the test. 
But I mean, you're not going to pass the test later on tonight just because you had a good quiet time this morning. It is a daily thing, doing good is, and it is a moment-by-moment thing. And then the fourth statement I would make is this. Doing good is not always easy. Doing the right thing. My dad taught us when we were growing up, and I've heard him say it in, to the church, churches through the years. He's saying, doing right's not always easy, but doing right is always right. Well, that's true. But doing good is not always easy. Sometimes we might want to do bad. Doing good is not always easy, but doing good is always the right thing to do. And so tonight, I want us to bow our heads as we come to the end. And I want us to have just a moment of prayer tonight in reflection as we think about King Asa, one of the greatest kings in Judah's history, one of the greatest kings in all the Bible. And yet even he didn't always do the good thing and the right thing. Tonight, those of you who are saved, would you ask God to help you in each situation, in each conversation, in each temptation... In each moment of your life, to do that which is good and to do that which is right. And not to rest on your laurels that you have 36 years of doing good. Well, praise God for those 36 years, but you still have years in front of you. Maybe five, maybe 15, maybe 25, maybe 50. We don't know. But would you just say, God, for whatever time I have left, help me to do the good and the right thing to the best of my ability. Would you ask God to help you be so in tune with Him that when His Holy Spirit gives you a gentle whisper, a nudge, a warning, a word of instruction, that you would hear it, that you would sense it in your heart and in your mind, and that you would follow His leadership to do good, to do right, to go down the path that He would have you to go down. It's not always a moral issue. It's just what's best for you. Now tonight, there are probably some here who say, John, you're right. I need to do good. But I feel guilty tonight because of some things I've done bad. Well, as I said last week, look, I regret every sin I've ever committed. I don't see how, how a true child of God could say they've never experienced regret. Because what sin could you commit that you wouldn't regret? I mean, what sin is that? What, what sin would it be possible to commit and not feel badly that you did it or said it or thought it? So tonight, if you say, John, I do want to do good, but I feel badly about some things I've done bad, would you ask God to forgive you and cleanse you tonight for whatever it is that you may have done? I'm talking to Christians now because even after we get saved, sometimes we do sin. 
God, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's what God does. Now tonight, there's some, I would think, who never have been saved. You've done some good in your life, and you've done some bad in your life, and maybe you came in here tonight just hoping when you meet God one day that the good will be more than the bad, and God will let you in based on that. But friend, God is not going to weigh it out like that in heaven. We don't go to heaven by having done more good than bad. We go to heaven by having the bad forgiven through the blood of Jesus. I would never want to stand before God on my own record. Adrian Rogers used to say, I would not trust the best five minutes that I ever lived to get me into heaven, and neither would I. We need to be forgiven, and we need to be saved. And if you've never done that, just tonight, say this, Lord Jesus, forgive me for the bad I've done, for the sins I've committed. Tonight, I'm asking you to wash those sins away in your blood. Come into my heart. And make me a Christian. Make me a Christian.